We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Megan Miskiman, and I'm here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Dr. Nikolai Strangaru. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Nikolai. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Nikolai is a professor in the Department of Mathematics here at McEwen, completed his Bachelor of Science in Romania, and his PhD at the University of Alberta here in Edmonton. He's been teaching at McEwen since 2008. So you're here to talk to us about mathematics, obviously. Yes. <laughs> uh, but a very particular study of, of mathematics. Uh, yes, I, I was thinking about telling you a bit about uh, the research problems I'm interested in. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I know there's a lot to unpack there, so feel free to to give us all the all the good deets. So the, uh, the type of research I got interested uh, during my uh, PhD, and I'm still interested after 20 years, it's... Uh, really have has its roots in physics. It's coming from the puzzling discovery of quasicrystals. So I should tell you a bit about the history of uh, diffraction and quasicrystals. So the, the basic uh, idea behind the physical phenomenon of diffraction is uh, to send some type of radiation, typically proton, electron, or X-ray, through a solid. And then on a wall somewhere far away, you get some type of picture which should give us some information about the atomic structure of the material. If the wavelength is a bit too big, basically the uh, radiation passes through the solid and you don't really get too much information. But if it is the right wavelength, each atom starts becoming a source of energy. I typically have this picture in mind, like water hitting some rocks when the river passes. Each atom starts becoming a source of waves. The waves in, interfere with each other. And the picture what we get at the end tells us some information about the waves. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, that, that actually yeah. makes a lot of sense. And I think many people actually have seen diffraction experiments in chemistry or physics. Uh, they have many, many practical applications. But uh, we all, always have to be aware of the fact that uh, at least up to now it's limited by the fact that we do lose some information in this process. Oh, okay. Uh, it cannot really tell us everything about the atom. It only can give us some limited information. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, uh, diffraction have be, uh, has been uh, basically discovered uh, a bit over 100 years ago, and it has been used uh, uh, initially in physics, material sciences. Uh, people have been using it to classify uh, uh, crystals, and then bigger and bigger um, uh, molecules. Uh, it is now used uh, to uh, find the atomic structure of um, a lot of uh, biological mo molecules. I think it was used for uh, uh, penicillin, insulin, things like that. Okay. Uh, the diffraction was the key behind the discovery of the double helix structure of the DNA. So it does give us, in many situations, a lot of information. And one thing the physicists uh, really discovered um, in 100 years of experiments was the following phenomenon, especially when it comes to crystals. Whenever you have a crystal, meaning you have a fundamental cell, which can be a single atom or a, mo a bigger molecule, which starts repeating periodically in all the directions, that's what um, uh, people uh, understand by a periodic crystal. Uh, when you do the diffraction uh, 
pattern of something like this, you get uh, a picture which looks like a very, very clear night sky. You get a lot of stars in very, very fixed positions. When you have something which uh, uh, is not as ordered as crystals, um, you typically start getting some type of diffuse background. It looks more like a cloudy sky. Okay, and if you have a mixture of both, you see both the stars, which call the stars the Bragg peaks, but you also see some cloudy image. Okay. Okay. And it is typically understood, it's not exactly right, but it's almost right that a clear night sky with only stars, it means you have something which has very, very high order. The diffuse background correspond to this order. And if you get only one type or another, you can go from very ordered things to uh, things which are very disordered. But typically, we get something which is in between. It has a large uh, Bragg peak, uh, Bragg spectrum, namely a lot of stars. But typically, you also see some clouds. Okay. Okay. So now we go to the quasi crystals. Uh, so for 100 years, physicists actually uh, observed that. Uh, only periodic crystal produce a clear night sky, no diffuse background, no clouds. Okay, so uh, the what we call pure point spectrum, namely the diffraction consisting only of stars, uh, has always been understood to really mean that you have a periodic crystal. Okay, and it's a pretty uh, nice exercise which is done typically in early years in crystallography or in some classes in mathematics to show that sometimes uh, such a diffraction pattern can uh, be invariant under rotations, meaning if you rotate it, you get exactly the same image, okay? Okay. So just to build in this direction uh, uh, without having to draw anything, so I'll try to describe it. Think about the corners of a grid uh, in, uh, on paper. So you have a paper or you have a, a grid made of squares, okay? Now, if you put an atom at each of the corners of those squares, or if you put an atom in the center of each one of those squares, when you do the diffraction diagram, you basically get a clear night sky, which consists only of stars, but you are going to uh, discover that the stars are sitting exactly at the corners of an uh, almost identical grid. A very, very, okay. okay, so they are going to be the corners of squares into a square grid, okay? And we call this fourfold symmetry because if you rotate it by 90 degrees, you get exactly the same picture. And it's called fourfold because four rotation by 90 degrees gives you exactly the same picture. Now, if you replace the square by honeycombs, the same phenomena happens. You get a diffraction which starts at the corners of honeycombs, and this has six-fold rotational symmetry. Okay? Six-fold automatically also means three-fold because three-fold it means you are rotating it double. Three-fold symmetry can also be obtained if you draw uh, a lot of equilateral triangle. You can make a grid out of equilateral triangles. Okay? Now, uh, as I said, it's a pretty nice exercise in early crystallography and in mathematics to show that if a diffraction diagram coming for, from a fully periodic crystal has any rotational symmetry, many of them are not going to have, but if it does, the only possibilities are actually 2, 3, 4, and 6, 4 rotational symmetry. 
five, it's impossible, and seven or more, it's impossible. As I said, it doesn't require too much crystallography, but you need to understand few very, very basic things. So I cannot really go into why does this happen. Um, if anyone is interested, you can come to my office and I'm always happy to explain things like this. So now, 100 years of um, experiments, as I was saying a bit earlier, told physicists that pure point spectrum uh, clear night skies only appear uh, in periodic crystals. And periodic crystals can only have this symmetry. Okay? In 1982, a physicist by uh, the name Dan Shadman uh, did a diffraction experiment from a very, very old substance. So I think he uh, picked an alloy of aluminum, uh, manganese, and something else. It slipped my mind right now. He brought it to a gas state, and then he instantly froze it. He did a diffraction di diagram, and from some particular angle, he got a real clear night sky, which, mm. based on what physicists knew at that point, uh, it meant it has to be a periodic crystal, but it had tenfold rotational symmetry. It's really a beautiful diffraction diagram, so uh, you can Google on Wikipedia and look at the diffraction diagram. It's really, uh, even if you don't like mathematics, I think you are gonna find that picture. You can call it beautiful, okay? <laughs> That's awesome. But this really puzzled scientists because uh, basically it was looking exactly like a crystal. 100 years of experiments are saying that this must be a crystal but it has had a certain property which is simply impossible in crystals. And this is really, it can be proven that it's impossible in crystals. It's not that just we take it for granted. So as people often say, it looked like a duck, it quacked like a duck, but this time it simply cannot be a duck, <laughs> what it is. Okay, so uh, Dan Shedman uh, discovery was finally published in 1984 because for about two years everyone was, uh, convinced that he was doing something wrong. Mm, of okay? course, yeah. <laughs> but at some point, uh, some other physicists uh, found similar diffraction diagrams. Uh, in 2011, he was actually awarded a Nobel Prize for this discovery. And his discovery, often uh, people refer to it as that time where 100% of the scientists actually got something wrong. Wow. Okay. So, so. Basically, this is really a very, very puzzling uh, question. What did uh, Dan Shenman discover? Pe after a while, people started uh, calling these quasi-crystals because they look like crystals, but they are not exactly crystals. So, and the main question we are really trying to understand, what can quasi-crystals be? And uh, this is the type of mathematical problem I'm interested in. I'm really interested in... Uh, the question physicists are, gonna, are trying to answer, they really have some mathematical meaning. They really become uh, problems in mathematics. I think about my research as being my homework to try to solve some of those problems. And I try to see if uh, we can do some progress. We are really trying to understand what happens here, what can be quasi-crystals, uh, what um, models can we construct for quasi-crystals, Ideally, if it is possible, given a real-life quasi-crystal, can we actually say a lot about its atomic structure? 
on the, these type of questions. Wow. That's a, that's a lot you're working on. <laughs> but I really appreciate the way that you explained it, though. You, you made it easy for me to understand. So I, I do have a couple follow-up questions. I guess yes. I'll start with, in terms of the quasi-crystals, um, in terms of what you're now looking into, have you been able to answer any questions or elaborate on any of the work that that, that gentleman had, had done? So basically, uh, there has been a lot of work done in the community, both from mathematical point of view and from physical point of view. So we are uh, working, at least in the early days, we are working very, very close with physicists now that we understand much better what they are interested in and they are understanding what we are doing. Uh, the need for uh, direct interaction, it's lower and lower, but we are still having regular meetings with them to discuss. And uh, much of uh, my research is r related to mayor sets. And um, there has been a lot of work done in community into really proving results of this type that certain uh, models are actually producing what one would expect uh, the diffraction to a quasi-crystal to be. Okay. okay. So we think that we did uh, some progress in this direction, but uh, as it's always the case with research in mathematics, there are always more questions than actual progress. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I know um, this isn't something that's exactly brand new to you either. You you, uh, you, you had a bit of inspiration to, to really dive into this, didn't you? Uh, yes. <laughs> so I was really inspired to get in this field by my supervisor, Robert Moody. I was, uh, uh, when I was... Uh, Starting my PhD, I was really looking at, I had uh, not that clear of an idea what I wanted to go. I was actually considering pretty seriously a completely different field. And uh, I started talking with him and he started telling me the story of quasi-crystal. He actually showed me some very, very interesting problems in mathematics. Uh, and basically, he really fascinated me. I always was fascinated by what he told me. And... Uh, uh, Basically, it was him, which just by telling me the story in a very, very nice uh, way, he hooked me on this field. And I think it's the best decision I made in my life or one of the best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're somebody who really should be doing this because your your passion is there. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So I, I guess like more for our listeners, what um, like how can this apply? Like where what fields are we looking at? Um, at this diffraction process with quasi-crystals. And, and I know you'd mentioned like it's not like applied math, but is there a way that we can relate? So uh, here the big question is uh, really what do you mean by uh, applying? Because remember, there is a physical side to the a story and a completely mathematical side to the story. And while we are uh, running around trying to prove some uh, mathematical results, which the physicist uh, probably care about. The physicists are also doing a lot of experiments. They are building quasi-crystals in the lab. They are studying them. And as they understand more and more, they realize that um, um, quasi-crystals have very, very odd properties. Mm. And in physics, odd property, it's always a very, very good chance that there, it can be applied for something. Okay, like okay. In, the, in the sense that it's like rare or it's... Uh, so... For example, in physics, if you are interested in electricity you uh, and you start studying quasi-crystals, you, you realize that they are bad conductors. Mm. 
So from this point of view, they are bad, right? But right. bad conductors typically also means good insulator. Right. So that's exactly what I mean. Some property being a bit different than what you are interested in has potential for applications. And quasi-crystals, uh, I don't know that much about the physics behind it, but when physicists are really looking at them, uh, they realize that they have very, very odd properties. One of the most famous story in the field is the fact that at some point, some physicists realized that uh, if you coat a frying pan with a bit of quasi-crystal material, then it becomes better than Teflon. It is as non-sticky as Teflon. And with a Teflon pen, the big issue is that if you scratch it with a knife, you destroy the pen. With the quasi-crystal coating, the quasi-crystal coating actually destroys the knife. Wow. So, <laughs> so very early in the, uh, the study of quasi-crystal, people got very, very excited about this discovery. And there were a lot of companies which made frying pans until they realized that, unfortunately, salt destroys the quasi-crystal coating. Oh, no. <laughs> so, but this is what typically happens in science. As you understand something better, you see that some things can be good, some things can be bad. Absolutely. Uh, and from what I know, the biggest application right now, it's based on the fact that if you uh, mix a bit of quasi-crystal powder to some particular type of steel, it makes it much, much more malleable, but it makes it extremely sturdy. It doesn't um, oxidate, very low chance to break, okay? And it's very, very bad electricity conductor. So this ha has huge potential for practical application. Oh, absolutely, because you're saying that it actually reinforces the metal? Exactly. Wow. So uh, the biggest challenge is that so far we cannot really build quasi-crystals at uh, industrial scale. Right. So any such application. And I think at the end of the day, the biggest challenge, especially from the physical uh, point of view, is um, to really get a lot of quasi-crystals because then they can study them better. Okay. Most of the quasi-crystals uh, we have are produced in extreme conditions. So they are typically not found in nature. Uh, there is an article which says that um, they found actually some quasi-crystals in some area of Russia, and it seems it's actually coming from a meteorite. So, oh, wow. So extreme conditions do happen in space. Yeah. So we do uh, need to either build them in laboratories, or maybe at some point we are going to discover them in some places around the world which are a bit less accessible, but where the conditions are not really that Right. Uh, yeah, volcanoes maybe. But uh, so far, I think there are some companies in Sweden which are using this much better uh, quasi-crystal reinforced steel to produce surgical equipment. Okay, I hadn't yeah. considered that. So, yeah. oh, that's really that's really yes. interesting, actually, and a very good application. Exactly. But as I said, as the physicists are going to be uh, going to be able to build bigger and bigger quasi-crystals, it has a lot of uh, potential applications. Right. Okay. Mathematically, we are really trying to do two things. One is to more or less improve our understanding of diffraction, trying to gain from a diffraction diagram as much as possible. And this, hopefully, is going to help physicists. And the second thing, we are really trying to construct models 
for quasicrystals. We tell physicists, if you can build something this way, maybe you are going to get quasicrystals. If that's possible to do physically or not, that's the thing with research in mathematics, you never really know. Yeah, that's, yeah not unless you try. <laughs> yes, exactly. And sometimes in mathematics, it can actually take 200, 300 years for some result to actually have physical uh, application. Wow. Okay. So you have to be very patient when uh, yes. you're researching mathematics. <laughs> exactly. You never know if something you discover might actually have real-life application. Sometimes something you discover, but this is very, very rare, could have real-life application. If it does, it could actually happen to be long after you are dead, so you'll never find out. And if it does happen, more often than not, it's not what you expected. It's <laughs> not the result you expected that this is the one which is more likely to have real-life application. It's the one often which you didn't expect. Okay. Okay. So you have to be okay with surprises. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the way I look at it is that very often uh, we do research just to gain knowledge. Knowledge is for us in mathematics the main thing about research. If it does have practical application, this is good. But even if it doesn't lead to practical application, if the physicists try to apply it to real life and they failed, probably they learned something from that. This doesn't work. And sometimes knowing what it doesn't work, it's as important as knowing what it works. That's a good point. Like it's it's not always about what it can bring to um, to society or, or practical application, like you said, but it's about answering a question and yes. and sort of, okay, well, that didn't work. Let's try this now. And I yes. mean, I guess with, with your field, it's a little different. We can't just try it and wait a week later and see what happens. It's <laughs> like you said, you're leaving <laughs> yes. notes for the next guy. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, that's very interesting. That's very, thank you for explaining it to me like that. Once you started telling me about the properties um, of the quasi crystals and, and um, the frying pan story, that was probably probably where I instantly the light bulb came on. I was like, ah, I understand. <laughs> and you see, the frying pan, uh, in some sense, is really a good example of something succeeding and at the same time something failing pretty bad. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, it, it, it did one thing really well, but yes. it actually did something else not so well. <laughs> yes. And I still think the frying pan could actually be, have a good, uh, uh, be very, very good for people which never use salt. Yeah, but true. People with high blood pressure, yes. they should use those pans. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but most people do use salt. So yeah, typically yeah. there's salt in everything I find. So, oh. Um, so I, I, I actually have a question about, um, and I don't know if you can answer it because you did already mention it a little bit briefly about the production of quasi crystals in the lab. Um, how, how large are we talking? Like, I, I know, I know when you talk about bringing them to industry and mixing them with metal and stuff, how much we would need, but, but what are you guys able to produce? Like, is this something that takes a while to grow or? I think uh, as far as I understand, it takes sometimes to grow. Last time when I asked a physicist, it was uh, probably five to ten years ago, and uh, he told me that he once holding to his hand a piece of quasi-crystal, which is as big as a chalk. Wow. So I would say it's pretty big, but of course, if you really try to uh, build something on industrial scale, that's nothing. No, exactly. Yeah. That that's yeah, yes. that's surprisingly small. Like just yeah. just the the amount of time that it takes to even produce it. And um, the other thing is that many of the applications of quasi crystals I'm aware of 
is not really about building a quasi-crystal and putting it into something. It's really about mixing quasi-crystals with something else. You need a bit of powder with some uh, steel. So depending on the ratio, I'm not really sure. Maybe a chalk, a, a chalk piece of quasi-crystal, it's uh, good enough for a few kilograms or maybe even more. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's very interesting yeah. to think about the surgical tools in Sweden too. Just how, what went into that and how many prototypes had to <laughs> be made. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. I feel like you, uh, you did a very good job at explaining this concept to me. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, where can we go to kind of uh, keep up on this research? Where can we go to learn more about quasi-crystals and, um, and more? Uh, well, this is a very good question. So um, there are a lot of research articles done in he, uh, in this area. Uh, most of them are very, very technical. But uh, whenever I want to keep myself up to date, I go to conferences, especially conferences where we are starting talking with physicists. And uh, one can start looking, not just trying to search results about quasi-crystals, but results about applications of quasi-crystals. So if you start looking around for things like this, uh, Probably you can find a couple papers which are really telling us what is new. And then a few years later, a couple more papers which are bringing up new materials in. But most of the times, conferences for me are the best place to really find about. Well, and not to mention your your uh, conferences are great because you're sort of talking to other people who are in, in fields like yourself, or at least in like-minded uh, like yourself, who uh, who can bounce ideas off of and really like educate yourself. Maybe you learn something new that you didn't realize, and vice versa. Exactly. So, and research in reality, uh, in mathematics, but also in most of the sciences, it's always a, co a cooperation. It's never really a race. It's really about people working together, and sometimes without even realizing, a lot of progress in uh, many areas of science was done by somebody doing something, and maybe. Years later, somebody completely unrelated building on that research, and then maybe later somebody else. And sometimes those people um, didn't even meet, but each one took a step into a 100-step pro huge progress. Absolutely. Working hand-in-hand, yeah. hand, like yes. like the disciplines. I, I totally, and especially when you came on, I, I wasn't expecting to hear a lot about physics. Um, but you make such a good point because physics sort of, correct me if I'm wrong, it's sort of that pathway from math math and science maybe so it's a little bit maybe goes more hand in hand with with your with what you're working on uh, i do believe that uh, mathematics uh, many of the questions in mathematics not all of them but many of the questions in mathematics are really trying from physicists trying to understand certain phenomena in physics absolutely mathematics uh, started uh, in some sense this way by trying to understand reality and physics and uh, uh, it evolve into something which is moving independently, but still many areas in mathematics are closely related to physics. We are interested in certain problems uh, just because physicists would really like to find the answer. We are interested in other problems just because we want to gain knowledge. And my field uh, uh, of mathematics, we refer to it as being a periodic order. Uh, this field is really was born from the discovery of quasi-crystals. We tried to really understand mathematically what happens with the quasi-crystals. For mathematics, this field was born in the early 1990s. 
So for mathematics, this is really like five minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Nico, for for going over that with us. I don't have any other questions, but um, is there anything else that you'd like Uh, to mention that maybe you didn't get a chance? No, it's just that uh, if uh, anyone is really interested in this type of questions, uh, you can find uh, my email or on my website. And you can always feel free to send me an email. I'm always happy to talk with you about quasi-crystals. The problem is that with mathematicians, when you start talking with them about things they are passionate about, you cannot stop. So, <laughs> so. Well, okay, fair warning to everybody who's listening. Just just keep that in mind and maybe bring a snack when you go to Nico's office, yes. <laughs> which we will put in the description, your the link to your website okay. and all that. Perfect. Thank you very much. And I'm always happy to talk about my research with people which are really interested. So. Oh, that's amazing. Well, well, you did us a, a great pleasure today. So thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think that this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskiman and Renette Schaubert. Music is by Dylan Cave with sound design and editing by Renette Schaubert. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Megan Miskiman, and our executive producer is Ray Burry.